Titus chapter 1, let's look beginning at verse 5. Paul writes, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains. Island of Crete, about 120 miles long, 735 miles wide at various points, sometimes narrow, sometimes broader. Pretty big piece of property, and there were towns all over the place and and villages and Paul and Titus had gone through throughout that island and evangelized it and believers were brought into being and churches were formed but those churches were still in their infancy and what they were in need of now was permanent leadership and so that was still left to be set in order and Paul is saying to Titus "I I want you to finish this set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you And thankfully, Titus wasn't left to his own judgment as to what kind of person he was to be looking for in these these fellowships. He was given a a set of divinely authored qualifications. Verse 6, namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. Notice that's the second time he says these men are to be above reproach. Exemplary, models, uh, a life not open to the accusation of scandal, a life that's not uh, a stumbling block for the gospel and a stumbling block for those who would consider the church. Above reproach. We'll get to this later, but specifically as a steward, verse 7, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Now this is where we're going to spend our time this weekend, those verses. Very grateful to be able to be with you this weekend. I'm excited about the the fact that we have, I don't know how many men here, 100 or more, I would guess, I don't know. But to have a group of men gathered together because they care about biblical manhood, because they want to be men of God, because they want to be pleasing to the Lord, that's encouraging. But you might wonder why for a, a conference like this would you select the qualifications for elders as your text? And I want to, get, I want to explain that for you. First of all, I select this because this passage and its companion in 1 Timothy chapter 3, these passages make clear that God's will for His church is male leadership. These qualifications are for men. Only for men. Only a man can meet these qualifications. So God's plan for His church is male leadership. It's important in in, in a world like ours where masculinity is under attack, where manhood, biblical manhood, would be considered by this culture to be toxic. It's important to be reminded that the standard for us is not the standard of the culture. The standard for us is the standard of Scripture. 
and God's plan for the church and God's plan for the home is that men would be leaders. Spirit-filled leaders, Christ-like leaders, not, not, not manhood defined by the culture on either end of the spectrum, but defined by the Word of God. So, so that's why a section like this one. A second reason is, whenever you read these qualifications for elders, you can't tune out these truths for your own life just because you're not an elder. Maybe that, that could be a tendency for someone to say, well, these are qualifications for elders. Well, I'm not an elder, and I don't think I'll ever be an elder, and so I, I'll just sort of tune out on this section because it's not for me. I want to I remind you that when you continue through the book of Titus, specifically when you get to chapter 2, and it begins to address what he wants the older men of the church to be characterized by and what he wants the younger men of the church to be characterized by, the character qualities that are mentioned in chapter 2 are basically the same ones mentioned in this, in this text. <clears throat> what the elders are to be are models of what the entire church is to be. It's not like you have this level of Christianity that's for elders and some lower level of Christianity for everybody else. No, the elders are simply to model what the Christian life is to be for everybody. So, for example, when the Bible says that an elder is to be above reproach as the husband of one wife, don't imagine that somehow every man in the church is not to be a one-woman man. Every man in the church is to be that kind of man. So, I select this text because it, it actually speaks of what is model Christianity, what is model manhood, what pleases God in men. So we can't tune out, and this is, this is a strategic passage for all of us. So, so anytime this weekend, if I'm just talking about elders, understand I'm talking about you, no matter who you are. Now, I, I notice we have some young men here. Maybe not everyone here is married. So when we deal with some things that have to do with marriage or with children, we're going to do that tonight. You can't tune out either for two reasons. Number one... Just because you're not married now doesn't mean you'll never be married. Just because you don't have children yet doesn't mean you'll never have children. And you're, you're called by God to be preparing for your future now. Take these truths into your heart now. Learn these things now. Be prepared to live in light of these things now. And then you'll, you'll be a better husband and a better father when that day comes, that that's your role in life. I can't tell you how many older people in the church I've heard throughout the years say, I wish I would have known this when we first got married. Or I wish I would have known this when my children were younger. You know, maybe you're teaching some series on marriage or on children. They'll say, I wish I had known this earlier. Well, the good news for anybody here tonight, if you're not yet married or you don't have children, you get to hear it now and take it into your heart. Second, if you never get married and you never have children, do you understand you are still responsible to uphold God's standards in this world? In terms of what you believe, in terms of what you embrace, in terms of what you defend, in terms of what you're able to explain for others. And so if you never get married, you never have children. This is still your truth. This is the church's truth. This is what God has revealed for all of us to embrace in our hearts. When you examine the qualifications, you're going to find that they, 
They consider men under three categories or in three areas. Number one, what kind of character does the man display in his home life? That's verse 6. If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. That's his home life. Number two, you're going to see that the, the men are to be examined with respect to their personal character. And we're going to see this tomorrow. In verse 7, you see five things that a man of God must not be. In verse 8, you see six things that a man of God must be. What must he not be? The overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. Five things he must not be. But, in contrast, here are six things he must be. He must be hospitable. He must love what is good. He must be sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. So, so what is a man's personal character? What's he like at home? What's he like when he's all alone? What's he like just in his own life? And then the third area he's to be examined, these men are to be examined in is, what is his relationship to Scripture? What is his relationship to God's Word? How does he handle what God has revealed? Verse 9, holding fast the faithful Word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. The work the elders are going to be called to do requires this kind of relationship to Scripture. And I would suggest that of these three areas, the one that is preeminent the one that sort of rules over the others, the one from which the other two flow would be the third one. Show me a man's relationship to Scripture. And I can tell you something about what his home life is going to be. And I can tell you something about what his personal life is going to be. Say so to, 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 this, to you this way, if a man doesn't reverence God and therefore reverence His Word, He's not going to be striving to honor God at home. And He's not going to be striving to honor God in His personal life. So it's, it's that third relationship, my relationship to God and His Word that informs and fuels and directs everything else in my life at home and in the realm of my personal behavior and attitudes. So this is where we're headed. Tonight we're going to talk about the man of God at home, and then tomorrow we're going to talk about the man of God's personal character. All of it resting on our relationship to Scripture. So here's the first thought for tonight. A godly man's role in the family. A godly man's role in the family. What is your role? Man of God, what is your role at home? It's interesting, isn't it? He says in verse 7, the overseer must be above reproach. And he uses this, this phrase, as God's steward. Do you realize the examination of men for eldership is really an examination of stewardship? Let me say that again. The examination of men for eldership is an examination of stewardship. Is a man above reproach as a steward? as God's steward. Now, that's a word we don't use a lot anymore, steward. Are you a steward? You may hear it 
at offering time. They hear talk about stewardship there. John Stott wrote a, wrote a book about the, the preacher's portrait. And in that book, he talks about five analogies used in Scripture to speak of pastors as preachers. And one of those analogies that's used is the analogy of being a steward, a, a house manager. A steward was someone who managed the affairs of someone else. So you have, you have the owner of the house, and he puts the, the, the care of the household into the hands of a slave. And that slave managed his master's affairs. That involved relationships, that involved the use of resources. He managed his master's affairs. And to be a trustworthy house manager, he would carry out the responsibilities he would be given, not in a self-willed way, but in a way that would please his master. And that's what preaching is. You're taking from the master's storehouse. It doesn't belong to me. It's his. I'm not the owner. I'm just a steward. And I take what belongs to him, what my master has given for me to do, and I apportion it out to his people. They're not my servants, they're his. And I, and I give out what the master has given from his stores. I take and I distribute. And to do it in a way that pleases him, talking about what Stott described in his book, to do it in a way that pleases him, I've got to be faithful. That's, that's the standard. Am I faithful to give what really has been given to me to give to them? And, and do I do it faithfully? Well... Pastoring is a stewardship. The church is not ours, it's the Lord's. The people are not ours, they're the Lord's. The resources to be used in shepherding people, they're not ours, they're His. And we're to to make use of the Word of God. That's what shepherding involves. The shepherd's crook is the Bible. We take the Word of God, we minister to people in a way that pleases Him. That's the standard of faithfulness in, in being an elder. That's why this this is an examination of stewardship. It isn't interesting. If a man hasn't been an elder yet, how do you know if he's going to be a faithful steward? How do you know he's going to be a faithful steward? Listen to 1 Timothy 3. Pastoral qualifications there. He must manage his own household well. With all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? The stewardship to be on display in elders in the church has first been tested by a stewardship taking place in their own household. It gets right to your family life. Just like the church is not ours, well, guess what, gentlemen? Your family is not yours. Not in the ultimate sense. Your wife is a gift from God. Your children are gifts from God. Every resource that you manage in your house, your finances, your home, your time, you're not the ultimate owner of those things. You're a manager of those things. You're a manager when it comes to your relationship with your wife. You're a manager when it comes to your fatherly responsibilities. You're a manager when it comes to your finances. 
You're a manager when it comes to your priorities and your time and everything else. The question is, are you a good one? Are you a faithful manager at home? Are you a good steward? That's what is under examination. And how you respond, how I respond to this stewardship speaks of our vision, our spiritual vision or lack thereof. Do I respond to these gifts in a way that understands the weightiness of them? My my marriage relationship, do I see it as a weighty thing? I mean, one day I'm going to give an account to Christ for what kind of husband I have been. Those little ones, and even in my case now joyfully, another generation of little ones as a grandparent, I get to have influence. Do I see this as a weighty thing, a weighty opportunity? And one day I'm going to give an account to Christ for what I've done with this. And then how I lead my family. The influence I have on them with respect to to things like church attendance and service and fellowship and Bible learning and prayer. Do I understand that as the the leader in my home, I mean, with a specially given responsibility that my wife even does not have. As Christ is the head of the church, so we are the head of our wives. We are going to, we're called to be loving leaders. Does that weigh on me? Is it serious? And am I going to trust God's word when all these things are, are tested? You know, just like ministry in the church is a difficult thing and a testing thing, well, ministry at home is a testing thing. You're going to have hard times and you're going to have easier times. You're going to have really joyful times. You're going to have some sorrowful times. You're going to have times where it seems like that everything that God has promised is coming true, and you're going to have times when you are going to battle doubt. But through all of those things, will you demonstrate faith? The kind of vision that says, God has spoken, what He says is true about Himself, about me, about this situation, what His Word says is true, and I'm going to cling. You notice verse 9 again? Someone who holds fast. The faithful word. I'm going to cling to the the truth. In all these situations, I'm going to hold fast to the truth. So do we consistently navigate these relationships with a vision produced by salvation so that we remain submissive to the word of God? So this is the first thing I want you to think about with me. Your role at home. Have Have you thought of it that way? Do you see yourself as having the role of a steward? Do you see yourself as a man, as a man of God, as being as a in your family, of being a house manager? That in fact, if one day you were to be considered for eldership, the first place they would look is have you been a good steward at home? Because if you don't know how to manage your own household, how will you take care of the church of God? By the way, doesn't that indicate that the two jobs are similar? What is the church? Isn't it the family of God? And we'll talk about it some this weekend, but the same skills that are necessary to shepherd the church well are the skills necessary to shepherd a family well, which is why this test could be set up, which is why this would be the examination. A godly man's role in the family. Second, 
a godly man's relationships in the family. So that's your role. You're a steward. Now, there are two relationships by which your stewardship is tested. If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. There are the two relationships, your marriage and your role as a father, if you have children. What kind of a husband are you? What kind of a father are you? How are you doing as a husband? How are you doing as a father? We think first about how you're doing as a husband. And the one thing that he mentions is this, the husband of one wife. It literally reads, man of one woman. Mias, one, by the way, that's fronted in the Greek text for emphasis, one. Ganaikos, woman, aner, man, one woman, man. One. What's he talking about? Well, this is not about polygamy. It's not about, you know, one instead of three or one instead of two or one instead of four. It's not about that. It's not what he has in mind. Though it would obviously, what he has in mind would rule that out. This is not requiring that elders be married. Some throughout the history of the church have taken that statement this way. Well, if he's to be a one-woman man or the husband of one wife, that means he has to be married. Well, the man writing the letter was not married and was an apostle. So this is not requiring that elders be married. You can have single elders in the church. This does not forbid remarriage after the death of a wife. Again, throughout the history of the church, some have understood this to teach. One, just one. So if your wife dies and you want to remain as a pastor, you cannot remarry. You have to remain single. That's not what the passage is teaching. We can know that because in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul makes clear that remarriage after the death of a spouse is absolutely lawful. There's nothing wrong with it. So that's not what he's talking about either. Nor is this qualification focused on divorce. I'm not saying there's no relationship between the matter of divorce and what he describes here. I'm saying that the main focus here is not divorce. This is not about a man's marital status. In fact, let me put it to you this way. I think it will help you, help you get it. It's possible to have only been married once and still not be a one-woman man. It's possible to have been married to the same woman all these years, you've never been divorced, and you still not be a one-woman man in the sense that he's talking about here. That's frightening, isn't it, to think about? So what is he talking about? Well, this, this qualification has to do with your devotion to your wife. Your devotion to your marriage. In fact, you're to be the kind of man who is devoted to your wife in a way that could serve as a model for the church. Above reproach in this area. Others could look to your devotion to your wife and say that's how a man should love his wife. That's how he should love her. It means you're a covenant keeper. Marriage is a covenant. It gets to your devotion. It gets to your loyalty. It gets to your faithfulness. 
And, and, and in all of it is, is the idea of singularity. You're, you're devoted, committed to this one woman. I think MacArthur does a great job of summarizing it when he says this, an elder must have an unsullied lifelong reputation for devotion to his spouse and to sexual purity. He must be completely free of fornication, adultery, divorce, and remarriage except after the death of a wife, mistresses, illegitimate children, and all such moral stains that tarnish the reputation of Christ and His church. And the reason why elders must be examples like that is because the entire church, the men of the church, are to be characterized by single-minded, single-hearted devotion to their wife. So that we can, we can state it, we've said what it's not, let's state positively what it is, or what we can say about this qualification. This qualification is given for the sake of the gospel. This qualification is given for the health of the church. Why would you have this qualification? Why must men be examined this way? Because those who lead the church must tell the truth about the gospel, and they must be a healthy influence for the church. So what do you mean about the gospel? Here's what I mean. What kind of a husband would Jesus produce? What kind of a husband would salvation produce? If a man really has eternal life, what does that look like in a marriage? In fact, you'll notice later in this chapter, or in chapter 2 rather, you get to chapter 2. Notice what's at stake in all this teaching about, about how the Men and the women of the church are to live. Notice what's at stake. Look at chapter 2 real quick. Look at verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love and perseverance. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, And what does the family life of the church, what's at stake here? Notice, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. What happens when the church doesn't live like it ought to live at home? Blasphemeo is what happens. The word of God is blasphemed. It's blasphemed both in the church and outside the church. It's held up to scorn. It is held up to disrespect. It's denigrated when we don't live these things at home. We're called to live lives that tell the truth about the new life that belongs to the new man. If you're a Christian, you're a new man, and you have a new life. And your marriage is to tell the truth about that new life. This is what the gospel produces. This is what salvation produces. This is what Jesus produces. That's why this qualification is important but also for the health of the church because your, do you know that your relationship to your wife is going to influence somebody else? It may be your boys, your, your sons, it may be your grandsons, it may be your friend, but your marriage is going to influence someone else. You as a husband are going to influence someone else. Are you influencing people in the way of truth? So what does this look like in practice? 
you're a one-woman man, what does that look like in practice? Let me give you a few descriptions in no particular order and not an exhaustive list, just some things that come to mind as I think about what it means to be a one-woman man. First of all, a one-woman man loves his wife out of reverence for God. The reason why you love her is because you love Christ. I love my wife, 35 years. I love her. I wouldn't trade her. And the longer we've been married, the more I love her, the more I'm thankful for her, the more I realize, you know, as we say, I married up, right? Um, I'm blessed, but I can still say 35 years later, the, the reason I love Jackie is because I love Jesus. And the reason I want to love her better is because I love Christ. And when I don't love her well, it's because at that moment I'm not loving Christ like I should. So it's out of reverence for God that we love the woman we're married to. True faithfulness in marriage is the fruit of a heart that fears God. When I, when I came to Founders 20 years ago, I followed a pastor who disqualified himself through infidelity. Multiple women in the church. And there, and, and I understand it, the sweet people of that church, their confidence in spiritual leaders was sub-zero. This man, this man had two accountability groups. And what the story he was telling is he had just, you know, hugged a woman or maybe kissed her or, you know, he just got too emotionally tied up with her, but he had not actually committed adultery. This was how the story went. And so he had two accountability groups. And one accountability group knew about one woman, and another accountability group knew about another woman, and the two accountability groups didn't know about each other. This is how this man was living his life. So when I came in view of a call and the search committee is talking to me, they say to me, so what do you do for accountability? Who are your accountability partners? What do you do for accountability? And I told them then, and I would tell you tonight, there is not enough human accountability in the world to keep a man out of trouble who doesn't fear God. There's the ultimate accountability. I live my life before the face of God. And then I told him, my best accountability partner is my wife. <laughs> to this day, there's no lock on my phone that she doesn't have the account. I mean, she, she has access to emails, phone, it doesn't matter. And she knows me. She's my chief accountability partner. But in reality, aren't we all accountable to each other throughout the church? And that's what I told them as well. There's no one who isn't subject to the discipline of the church. But it's the fear of the Lord that causes us to depart from evil. It's the fear of God. When you realize that everything you do is before the face of God. You know, when you think about the problem of pornography, what you really have is, is in those moments when you look at things you shouldn't look at, you are not fearing the Lord. You're living as if He's not seeing what you're doing. Or if you know He sees, you don't care. So we love our wives out of reverence for the Lord. Say it another way. You believe His promises for obedience and you believe His warnings for disobedience. Do you believe this? Psalm 112 Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. 
Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He's gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously in lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous, listen, for the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news, which is to say he's got a clear conscience. He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Do you believe both parts of that psalm? Godliness exists in the place of blessing. Wickedness represents a life that melts away. And so if you fear the Lord, you love your wife in a way that you're devoted to her and her alone. Second, a one-woman man is devoted to his wife for a lifetime. That's God's will, isn't it? Go back to the book of Genesis. What's, what is marriage? Is it a creation of man? No, it's the creation of God. And what do we see at the very beginning? We see one man with one woman for life. For life. I tell people in pre-marriage counseling, I've yet to do a wedding ceremony where someone says until divorce parts us. Every time they promise to God and to each other and in front of all those witnesses, until death parts us. Devoted to her until you die or until she dies. And not only do you understand the lifelong nature of the marriage covenant, but you embrace it joyfully, unshakably, committed to that standard. I talked about this at a Bible study just today, Friday, last night. And we had four young couples that we're meeting with. And, and I told them, let me give you one practical outflow of this. This means that the D word should never be used in your home. I'm talking about divorce. Isn't this what people do? They, they have an argument. Even Christian people, some professing Christian people, they have an argument and they'll say things like this. Well, maybe you'd be better off with someone else. Well, then why don't you just go? I should have never married you. You know, those sorts of things. No matter, no matter whether you use the word or not, you know what you just said in those three statements? We'd be better off divorced. Not only should that not come out of your mouth, that shouldn't even go on in your head. You've got to close that door in your mind. You've got two choices in your marriage. You're going to be miserable together or you're going to be joyful together. Those are the only options you have. Because that person, the moment you married them, they became your spouse, your helpmate for a lifetime. And, and I believe that our Lord's disciples understood that when Jesus taught on divorce and remarriage in Matthew 19. Because when Jesus gave his teaching, 
You know, there was the school of Shammai and there was the school of Hillel, but Jesus gave his teaching. And when he gave his teaching, his disciples said, if this is the case between the man and the woman, this is in Matthew chapter 19, if this is the case between the man and the woman, what did they, what did they say? You remember? It's better not to get married. <laughs> I mean, they understood. It, 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 it hit them. You're talking about life for life. Has that gotten into your heart that this is for life? And there's no honorable way out. So love her for a lifetime, for Christ's sake. Third, a one-woman man is devoted to his wife in his heart. In his heart, right? It's not just your body. Maybe you congratulate yourself and you say, well, I've never committed adultery. By the way, God forgives adultery. So if there's some man in this room that you failed in this way, it doesn't mean you can't be a one-woman man. It means you've got to start being a one-woman man now. Aren't we grateful God forgives sins? So he forgives this sin. But my point here is you can't just, you can't think that because you're not committing the sin physically that you're not guilty of violating this standard. Our Lord made that clear, didn't He? Crystal clear. Matthew 5, 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Is lust serious? Is looking at a woman and lusting after her in your heart Is that serious? Is it sin? Well, what did our Lord go on to say? Very next verse. I'll tell you how serious it is. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Show me a man who lives in unrepentant adultery. I'll show you a man who doesn't know Christ at all. And so serious is this kind of sin. Well, Christ, obviously, you know this. He's not saying literally pluck your eye out or cut your hand off. He is, he is illustrating something. This kind of sin is so serious, you need to take radical action. What do you need to do to change this if this is something you're struggling with? What do you need to do? Do whatever it takes. If it means you don't carry a smartphone, don't carry one. If it means you don't have a computer, don't have one. If that's where your struggle is. Be wise enough to run from this kind of sin. Fourth, a one-woman man honors and cherishes his wife. Your love for her, your devotion to her, the lifelong the understanding you have of the fact this is a lifelong union, the fact that you're committed to her in your heart, all this gets displayed by the fact you appreciate her, you cherish her, you honor her. First Peter 3, 7 says, You husbands, in the same way, after a wife has been taught to submit to her husband, to love him, even if he's a disobedient man, verse 7 says, Husbands, you, you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she's a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. 
What do you mean? I mean, you're going to spend eternity with her. And she's an equal heir of the grace of life, which is to say she's a daughter of God. She's as much a member of God's family as you are. She is an inheritor of the promises just like you are. Respect her, love her, honor her, cherish her. And how serious is this? Next statement. So that your prayers will not be hindered. Do you think you can mistreat her and have a close walk with God? It's madness, isn't it? The thought that God would honor all my efforts while I mistreat my wife. A one-woman man honors and cherishes his wife. Let's look back at uh, Titus, if you went over to 1 Peter 3. But, in, but, but this is the first area. This is where we're to examine men for eldership. What are, are they a good steward? God's given them a great gift in the form of a wife. Now, what does he do with God's gift to him? How does he manage this gift? She, she belongs to him in the sense he's been, she's been assigned to him, but she doesn't belong to him in the ultimate sense. She belongs to God. Now, how is he managing God's good gift to him? Is he fully devoted to her, singularly devoted to her from his heart, not just bodily, loving her, cherishing her, treating her in a way that honors Jesus for a lifetime? Second relationship, how about our children? Having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Let's start with the first part there. Having children who believe. What's he talking about? Is he saying, this is, this is an interpretation reflected in the translation of the American Standard. All right? I want you to know there's more than one way you could understand this. One, way, one legitimate way you could understand this is that an elder must have believing children. In which case, the, the qualification would be this. If a man has a child who is not a believer, he would be disqualified. He would need to step down. I don't think, my own view, if you're taught something different here, you believe the people who teach you here. Okay? I'm just giving you my view. My view is he's not talking about that. I don't think he's talking about your children must be believers. I think that is MacArthur's position as well. I don't agree with that. I think what he's teaching here is that your children must be faithful. And this matches the qualification given in 1 Timothy 3, which says he's to keep his children under control with all dignity. They're to be submissive to their father, faithful in that way. In other words, you have your children under control. Your, your home is not out of control. Your home is well managed. That, this includes how your children are behaving. By the way, this is why he would say they're not to be accused of dissipation or rebellion. You know, wild living, rebelling against their father's standards. No, your children, even if they're not believers, you have shepherded them well enough that they are still respectful of you and of your standards. They are kept in submission. I think that's the idea here. Just like we said about uh, one woman man, I want to make some things clear. This does not mean that an elder must have children. Some have interpreted it that way. If you don't have kids, you can't be an elder. Or if this were to mean that an elder's children all must be believing, we would have to ask, well, what about a man who has children too young to believe? Does it mean he can't be an elder until they're 10? And what is the age? At what age do we know that they should have believed? And can he, can he uh, sort of come in and out of this? So we make him step down because now his child is 13. They should have believed by now, and they don't. But now the child believes at 15, so we'll bring him on. 
Or the child makes a profession of faith at 15, but then walks away from the faith at 25. So now we're going to make him step down. I mean, it leads to all kinds of confusion. I don't think this is what it means. Matt Wehmeyer, um, you guys who are in the seminary, you know Matt. He's a professor at the Expositor Seminary. He's a, an elder. He's on staff at, at uh, Grace Emanuel in Florida. He said this, When the adjective pistos is used in the New Testament... To describe people rather than God, it means believing 12 times and faithful 36 times. So both possibilities are well attested in Scripture. Furthermore, Paul uses pistos in both ways in the pastoral epistles. For it clearly means believing in 1 Timothy 6.2 and faithful in 2 Timothy 2.2. Because either nuance of meaning is therefore possible in Titus 1.6, the context must be the deciding factor regarding Paul's intended meaning. In considering the context, I would like to suggest five reasons why pistos should be translated faithful or obedient in Titus 1.6 rather than believing or who believe. And he goes on to list his five reasons, and I won't go over those. But I agree with Matt. I think this means faithful. Justin Taylor writes this, requiring that his children have genuine saving faith is to require personal responsibility for the salvation of another. Something not taught in Scripture. I mean, are we really going to conclude that if a man has an unbelieving child, it necessarily means he's been an unfaithful father? Well, let me say it positively. Is it possible for a man to be a man of God, to love Jesus, to love the Scriptures, to live the faith before his family faithfully, and to have a child who doesn't believe? Is that possible? It is, isn't it? If it's not possible, then you explain your children's conversions. And can I tell you, you don't. You need to, if you have believing children, you need to get on your knees and look up and thank God for His saving grace. Now, He uses us. He uses means, doesn't He? He uses prayer. He uses the sharing of the gospel. He uses us living the faith before us. He uses means, but conversion is a monergistic work. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in someone's soul. The person who gets saved doesn't explain regeneration, and the people who witness to them don't explain regeneration. God's Word in the hand of God's Spirit is how someone goes from death to life, and they are born again, born of God, born of the Spirit. So you can't hold a man responsible for the conversion of his children. You can hold him responsible for being a good father, a faithful father, or not, but not for the conversion of his children. William Barrick, who taught at the Master's Seminary, said this, Parents do not have the ability to save their children or to guarantee their salvation. There is, it is true, a certain amount of accountability in how a child is raised. However, nowhere does Scripture indicate that a father can determine the faith of his child. Each person is individually and personally responsible for his or her acceptance or rejection of the gospel. Parents are not the Holy Spirit. By the way, can I tell you, that understanding goes into being a good father. I watch parents who I believe are raising their children for their own reputation. Let me raise my children in a way that reflects well on me. And what I want to see in our church and in my own life are parents who raise their children for the glory of God. And when those children are saved, all glory be to God. And God, thank you that you did a work that far transcends me. Because if my children's conversions had rested on my perfections, they're lost. Thank you, Lord, for being gracious to my family. Thank you for saving my children.
So this goes into being a good father, this perspective. He goes on to say, let me finish what he said. Parents are not the Holy Spirit. Godly, obedient, consistently faithful pastors leading their homes with the highest spiritual wisdom, character, and deeds can experience a child who does not believe in the gospel. Sometimes a child will not believe until much later in life. Is that man to be excluded from serving as an elder because of that? And his answer is no. So I think pistos in this verse ought to be translated faithful instead of believing. He must have children who are faithful, submitted to him, kept under control, not accused of dissipation or rebellion is how I would understand the verse. Why? Why would this qualification be given? No, because this is where it all starts. If you you don't have your home in order, you you don't learn how to be a good shepherd at the church before you learn to be a good shepherd at home. You learn to be a good shepherd in your home, and then we know you're qualified to be a good shepherd in the church. So what I'm saying to you men tonight is this. Again, you may be saying, well, I'm not an elder, but listen. Oh, listen. This is where your, your spiritual stuff is tested. This is the first place it's tested. It's not tested by what you're doing at the Sunday school class. Not the first place. The ultimate testing place for your spirituality is not what you're doing in the evangelism class or what you're doing in serving a meal or what you're doing in whatever, preaching a sermon. The first place our godliness is going to be demonstrated is at home, where it's got to begin. I often think about what Jesus said about Nathaniel. He said, he said of Nathaniel, an Israelite indeed, a true Israelite in whom is no guile. What a statement. Nathaniel is what he appears to be. That's what I want for all of us. Do you have a home you and a business you and a church you? Or is it just you? And what we ought to desire is it's just us. Or, as I've said to our church, the best thing you'll ever do for your marriage and for your children is live the Christian life at home. I mean, really live the Christian life at home. So this qualification is here because this is where the man must begin. This is the most important thing. And because, I mentioned this, the shepherding qualities are the same. The shepherding qualities are the same. Men, you are called to be shepherds at home. Very quickly, what does a shepherd do? He's familiar with his people. Do you know your kids? Do you really know them? Do you have older ones, especially? How many days come to an end where you barely had a conversation with your children? Do you know what's going on in their lives? Do you know what's troubling them? Do you know what's encouraging them? Do you know where their insecurities are? Do you know what they're questioning right now? Do you know anything about their friends? Do you know anything about what they do with their phones? Or what they're watching on TV or what they're listening to in the car? Are you getting, do you know your kids? Do you, do you get to know them? Good shepherding means knowing your people. Good shepherding means you're concerned with your people. Are you really concerned for your children? Do you love them? Do you really care about them? Do you really care about them? Do they know you care about them? How many children, especially, this is where dads can be so weak. They know mom loves them. They need you. They need you. You letting mom raise them? You're so busy with work, so busy with all kinds of responsibilities. 
Are you letting mom raise them? They need you. A good shepherd is concerned for his people. A good shepherd is concerned for the souls of his people. What are we doing in Hebrews 13? We're watching for souls. That's what pastors do. They watch for souls. The most important thing for me about my kids is, do they know the Lord? Do they love Him? Do you care about the souls of your children? If they are upstanding citizens, if they accomplish all sorts of wonderful things by worldly estimations, they're a doctor, they're a lawyer, they're a this, they're a that, and they're a, a, a respected person in the community, but their heart is far from God, will that crush you? Let me ask a question quick. Does anybody, anybody in here work in the garbage collection industry? Would you raise your hand if you do? Okay. You know what I used to tell my kids? I don't care if you're a garbage man. I don't know why I chose that. Because there's nothing, nothing that is anything but respectful about serving the Lord in any industry if you work hard. But I used to say to them, what I was trying to illustrate is, I don't care what you do with your life. If you love Christ, that's all I care about. Two of my kids have graduated college. Two of my kids didn't go to college or didn't finish. Two of my kids are married. Two of my kids are not. Two of my kids have children. Two of my kids do not at this point. I love them all. What I care about is do they love the Lord? That's what I care about. And anything else, even someone told me... um, when my daughter left last week with my son-in-law and my grandkids, someone said something to me that I thought was very encouraging, very wise. They said, I would rather have my children living somewhere else in the country loving the Lord and serving Him than to have them right next door. And they aren't. And that gave me a lot of comfort. It's right. I hate the fact they moved to New Mexico. But I love the reason they've moved there. It's to serve Jesus. You care about the souls of your children? And if you do, here's what you're doing. You're applying the Scriptures to the lives of your children. This is what shepherds do, don't they? They apply the Scriptures to the lives of their people. This is what pastors do. They apply the Scriptures to the lives of their people. Are you praying for your children? Are you spending time with them? Are you instructing them? Do they ever have dad? Dad, open the Bible and teach them anything. Do you correct them? Do you encourage them? So let me end with this. We're out of, out of time. I may have gone beyond time. Some practical words as we think about home life. Make your relationship with your family a matter of discipleship. Don't imagine you're walking well with the Lord if you're neglecting your family. Make this a part of your walk with Jesus in your own brain. If I'm going to walk with the Lord, I've got to pursue my family. Second, make your relationship with your family then a matter of priority. Has your family been a priority for you lately? My dear brother, have they been a priority for you? Third, make your love for your family unmistakable to them. If I ask your wife or your children, does this man really love you? What would they say? Fourth, be faithful with the means that God has ordained for shepherding. So I'm talking about prayer, Bible study, church attendance, 
Spending time with other believers. Be faithful with those things. That's what God uses for a healthy family. Fifth, this is really hard for men. Model the confession and forgiveness of sins. When's the last time anybody in your family heard you say, would you forgive me? I sinned against you. I don't imagine you're sinless. I know I'm not. Do you model confession of sin? Do you model forgiveness of sin? Are you someone who's quick to forgive? Are you forgive from your heart? Be honest with yourself about your whether or not you are faithful in these things. Can you be honest about it? I think our first reaction sometimes is to be defensive, but we don't grow through being defensive. How are you really doing in these things? Last thought. Cast yourself entirely on the grace and mercy of God. Oh, Lord, if you don't build the house, the laborers labor in vain. If you don't defend a city, nobody's safe. And I can give all the effort in the world, but if you don't build my home, it won't be built. I look to you. Help me. Bless, Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these precious men. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege you've given us to serve you in our families. Forgive us where we don't see ourselves as stewards. Forgive us where we've forgotten that. Forgive us where we've taken our wife for granted. Forgive us where we've taken our children or grandchildren for granted. Forgive us, Lord, for the many times that if we're all being honest... We're just dull to the weightiness of all of this. Save us from our own sinfulness, Lord. And grant us the vision we need to joyfully pursue these things in your grace, knowing that Jesus died for all of our failures, all of our sins, and that with our Savior we can live lives that please you. So my prayer for my brothers tonight, Lord, is if this has exposed some area where they're failing, my prayer is not that they would go home under a load of guilt, but that rather we would be motivated to pursue you in these things. We ask for this tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.